Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, we are thankful for this morning. We are thankful that despite the rain and despite the, the craziness and the chaos that we come out of and, and come into this space this morning with, Lord, that you have promised in your word to meet us. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, you have promised as we sit under your word, as we let your word speak to us in an authoritative way this morning, you promise to speak to us. Uh, maybe not in the way that we want to hear, but in the way that we need to hear this morning. So Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you're speaking to us right now today as we look at this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you might not have caught it, uh, but the, the question our text is asking this morning is, is a big one. It's a big question. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? I'll say it again. Do you want to be happy? And if you didn't catch it, let me read Matthew 5, verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning marks our first time in what the church has historically called the Beatitudes. Nine mind-blowing statements, all beginning with this blessed, or, and I don't usually do this, but it's helpful for us this morning, in the Greek that it was originally written in, uh, the word is, it's on the screen behind me, uh, makarios. Makarios. And I'm sure I butchered that and Heath will make fun of me later because he lived in Greece. Makarios. Some have translated this word, and perhaps you have it in your Bible this morning, happy. Others, I like the translation that we read from already, have translated it blessed. But because happy and blessed, if we think about it, probably mean a thousand different things to a thousand different people. Uh, this morning, I want to borrow from a definition we get from a guy named Jonathan Pennington. And Jonathan Pennington says this, Makarios is the key biblical term to describe one in a state of human flourishing. The key biblical term to describe a person in the state of human flourishing. And so we could interpret this, flourishing are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And do I have your attention now? Whatever we learn this morning, whatever we see about what this means to live in Jesus' coming kingdom, Jesus has shown his hand out of the gate. The promise this morning is the path to flourishing, blessedness, deep, meaningful happiness. In fact, for the next nine weeks... All we're going to do is talk about how you, you sitting here this morning, can be in a state of human flourishing, deep, meaningful happiness. And I don't care how you come, what prior beliefs you have entering this room, you cannot tell me this morning that you do not want that. You can't tell me that. In an increasingly uh, tribalistic and fractured world that we live in, right? Because it's going that way. It's not coming together. It's going apart. In an increasingly tribalistic and fractured world, uh, there is but one thing that we all still share in common. 
Uh, there is one idea that seems to unite all people. An idea endlessly explored in film, in literature, both fiction and, and nonfiction, uh, in politics, in, in advertising, you name it. That idea is our happiness. We all agree on this one thing. We want to be happy. Uh, in 2018, Yale University, the great prestigious Yale University, offered uh, what was their most popular course ever in their 300-year history titled uh, The Science of Happiness. The Science of Happiness. Uh, it was a course in the field of positive psychology. And over 1,200 people, think about that, or a classroom of 1,200 people, not a lot of teacher, people, uh, like student interaction there, Right? But in this classroom of 1,200 people, they all were there, you know, begging, teach us to be happy. What does it mean to be happy? We will pay a lot of money to learn how to get it. We'll do anything that our kids might have it. And we'll consider our lives meaningless, pointless without it. We all agree on one thing. We want to be happy. We want to be happy. And after how we get it, well, we've got no shortage of answers. Here are a few. Live in the moment, right? Treat yourself. Go to school, get a job, settle down, play it safe. See the world, travel more. Make a difference in your community. Get more things, get rid of your things, right? We have no shortage of answers as to how we actually obtain this happiness. It should not surprise us then that Jesus comes to us in the Sermon on the Mount with an answer to human flourishing, to human happiness, to human meaning of his own. This morning, here's how I want us to walk through Matthew 5, 1 to 3. First, we're going to see the ground rules for flourishing. The ground rules for flourishing. What are essential things we need to get to understand and interpret these nine Beatitudes, these nine blessed are statements correctly and helpfully? So the ground rules for flourishing. Second, we'll move on to the beginning of flourishing. Here we'll look at why Jesus begins with all things, uh, these Beatitudes, with this statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why does it matter that we begin with the poor in spirit? And thirdly and finally, we're reminded that the Sermon on the Mount is about to be lived out. It's about being obeyed and, and, and changing us. And so we'll ask and look at the practice of flourishing. What does it mean for us today in Vancouver in 2019 to live as the poor in spirit? Ready? You're with me? That's okay. I'm, I'm here anyways. It's worth noting... Let's start. That, that a series of statements like this, these makarios statements, and I'll give you one more fancy word, uh, are a part of a list of macarisms. And in the ancient world, uh, macarisms, a list of flourishing attributes, was actually not all that uncommon. And, and if you know any Greek philosophy, you know uh, that in a sense, what's happening here is similar to what happens in Greek philosophy. Uh, Aristotle, uh, his peers, were encouraging people to look at these things, what they call virtues, uh, in order to flourish as people. And so these things, these macarism, these nine statements, were not uncommon in Greek philosophy or in Judaism. They're not uncommon things. What would distinguish uh, one teacher or sage from another teacher uh, was the taught path uh, that would lead to happiness, that would lead to the good life, that would lead to the flourishing life. 
And so it's worth asking, I think, out of the gate, uh, what distinguishes, what separates the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, not only from other ideas of flourishing uh, in Jesus' day, but other ideas of flourishing in our own day. What are these ground rules for flourishing in Jesus' kingdom? And the first thing is this. Uh, We have to acknowledge, and we looked at this all last week, is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't come to us as just another teacher. As just another teacher. And right away in Matthew 5, verse 3, we discover the importance of us deciding out of the gate, from the beginning, just who we believe this preacher to be. It really does change everything about how we read uh, the sermon. Uh, these nine statements, if read rightly, are Jesus speaking authoritatively to a way of being in the world if you want to be truly happy, if you want to truly flourish. He's not speaking from some synagogue. He's not borrowing from someone else's authority. Jesus has climbed the mountain of divine revelation and he is speaking on his own authority, on the basis of his own name. And we saw all that last week. But the other thing, if we can say it like that, that I want us to see about the authority of Jesus is this connection between the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus. The authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus. That Jesus, the Son of God, not only invites us into a vision of flourishing, he not only paints that vision for us, but he graciously empowers us to live into that flourishing as citizens of his coming kingdom. And this relationship between authority and power uh, is all over the book of Matthew. I don't know if you remember last week, but last week we we met a character called the crowd. And the crowd is like this funny character. It doesn't always get a speaking line, doesn't always get a speaking role in Matthew's gospel. But occasionally the crowd gets a speaking uh, line, right? They're background actors, but occasionally they speak. And the crowd has this favorite refrain, this favorite thing that they like to say. Uh, Matthew 9, 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Look at Matthew 15, 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Matthew 17, 14 to 15. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord... Have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. And Jesus does have mercy. And he does miraculously heal these people. Over and over again, we see Jesus' ministry of grace is one that leads to people's healing. It's, It's a powerful ministry. And it's not because these people were particularly good or particularly deserving. It wasn't because they were level 10s and level 10s get healing. That's not what's happening here. He he comes to them and graciously, mercifully heals even Canaanites, even blind people, a societal outcast, people who are not worthy of even his presence. But Jesus is gracious. See, Jesus does all these healings on the basis of his grace. He does this. But also on the basis of Jesus' grace on who he is, his disciples do many powerful things as well. Now, we could see this uh, all over our Bibles, but I want us to show us this in Matthew. Because I think it's really cool, if you'll permit me a nerdy moment, uh, how Matthew does this. 
if you don't know, uh, the chapter divisions that you see in your Bible, Matthew did not put those there, right? Those were imposed uh, later to sort of separate uh, sort of the flow of thought. But in Matthew's day, uh, to indicate the beginning and the ending of a section in Scripture, uh, he would uh, put a phrase at the beginning and put that phrase at the end and would form what's called, here's one more fancy word, an inclusio. This is a section of writing in Scripture uh, to indicate a beginning and an end. Uh, The beginning of the section that we're in, that the Sermon on the Mount is in, starts in Matthew 4.23. It's on the screen behind me. Look at it with me. And he went, this is Jesus, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and, and listen, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every d- disease and every affliction among the people. And this section ends when the phrase is almost repeated verbatim in Matthew nine thirty five. Look again. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Do you see that? Beginning, and this is a section Matthew wants us to see. The Sermon on the Mount then, and the miracles that happen after it, is Matthew telling us just exactly what he means when he says Jesus was teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing diseases and all afflictions. Now that's interesting, maybe just to me. That's interesting. Why should you care about this? What does this have to do with grace? What does this have to do with with power? In Matthew 10, 1, look with me. Look at the statement that we find again. Except this time, notice who the power, the healing, is attributed to. Matthew 10, verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over every unclean spirit to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The power is passed to the 12 disciples. And I think the rest of the New Testament is clear on this. I think it passes to us, followers of Jesus today. Here's my point. Grace, in one sense, is passive. You and I, the only thing we bring to Jesus is our stuff. The only thing we bring to Jesus is our sin. Even in turning from our sin and putting our faith in Jesus, that act in itself is a gift. And in that sense, grace is is passive. But grace is also active. It's active. It is by grace that you and I are empowered to go out and continue the ministry of Jesus. His ministry. His teaching. Proclaiming his name, healing people, restoring people, seeing brokenness come complete in his name for his glory. We're reminded that before the Beatitudes are for us, the Beatitudes are firstly a description of Jesus. Jesus perfectly did the Beatitudes. You and I, here's a spoiler, in this life, especially if you're a perfectionist, you will never be able to do these things perfectly. But... That does not mean that we are powerless in our trying. That we just sort of give up, wash our hands. See, the grace does not come to us in the form of a pep talk. Jesus is not like a college football coach who says to us, you know, people, let's get this, let's do this, come together, break, let's go, and just sort of like you encourage us. That's not how he, he graciously empowers us. 
Instead, grace comes to us in the form of a person. Later in Matthew, we discover that that person is the Holy Spirit. That you and I are powerful in as much as we are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. That should cause us to like at least stop and think about that. See, some have read the Sermon on the Mount. And some have read the Beatitudes as a series of impossible ideals. Impossible ideals. That really, what Matthew and what Jesus is getting at in the sermon is, listen... Here is like the really high bar, and you can't get there. And the sermon just exists for us to see how bad we are. Just exists for us to see that we can't make it. It's the idea that the sermon is this impossible ideal, that Jesus is just ratcheting up the law of Moses to such a degree, to such an extent, that we all see just how bad we are. What I want to say this morning is that reading the sermon just through the lens of an impossible ideal— and excuse me if you find this offensive, it essentially castrates the commands of Jesus. It gives us an excuse. It gives us an out. I don't really have to obey those. I don't really have to be like that person. It's just an impossible ideal meant for me to see my sin. Here's how I think we should read the Beatitudes. In fact, here's how I think we should read the whole sermon. See, what the impossible ideal people get right is that yes, on our own, we cannot be these kind of people. You can't, I can't, uh, we are not these people. But as we confess our inability, and we'll see this, we are met in our weakness by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Beatitudes are fueled by grace, lived by grace, made visible by grace in our weakness. The same Jesus who authoritatively paints this vision also authoritatively empowers our obedience as well. Our doing. Beatitudes are fueled by grace. They are made possible because God has acted. And in this way, the language of blessed and blessing is helpful, is is accurate. Outside of God's divine blessing, we can't be these people. And to read them any other way would be to turn them either into frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. And you will burn out and you will say to heck with Jesus and you'll never follow him. That's the first ground rule. The other ground rule is this. The Beatitudes are invitations to live wisely in Jesus's kingdom. Remember, Jesus has postured himself in the sermon as a teacher. He's teaching. And like a teacher or a sage in that day, he's giving us a vision of how to live in this life, how to walk wisely in this life. Much like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes act as wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the, the Sermon on the Mount is in fact New Testament wisdom literature, teaching us how to walk wisely. But if you've heard the Beatitudes before, you know, and we'll see this in like a few seconds, you know that they do not immediately come across as wisdom right? It's not apparently obvious. Like, oh yeah, that's wisdom, right? In fact, they sound, at first read, quite foolish, don't they? Maybe that's just me. They sound silly. They sound silly. And they would be foolishness, and they would be silly if they were instructions for living in a capitalist and materialist society that's breaking into the world. See, these would be foolish and silly, wise instructions for living in an anarchist 
uh, atheistic, uh, perhaps even communist state. These would be foolish ways to live if that was a world that we wanted to live into, to press into. But these wisdom invitations are meant, hear me, for none of those kingdoms. They're meant for none of those ways of living. For flourishing in none of those worlds. They're meant for a different kingdom that Jesus is in fact ushering in. Remember, look at Matthew 4.17 with me. Matthew summarizes Jesus' message. Like, if he's going to summarize what Jesus is saying at that time, Matthew summarizes Jesus' message at the time like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a summary of what Jesus was teaching at that time. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus is inviting his followers to do a U-turn, if you will, in their way of being in this world and align themselves with his coming kingdom. The Bible teaches, and I think this morning we all intuitively know, uh, that things are far from how they should be. Right? I don't have to spend long there to convince you of that. We all intuitively know that things are far from how they should be. Death, war, famine, rebellion, chaos. And so the people of God have always anticipated and looked joyfully to the day of the Lord. Something called the day of the Lord. When Jesus would return, when God would come and make right every wrong and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, in view of this, enter Jesus' pronouncement, like he says in 417, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, see, Jesus, as Matthew is telling us earlier in his gospel, is God with us. And, and it sure sounds like that, right? If you read Matthew's gospel, doesn't it sound like God is with us? Healing. Amazing healing, right? Wine. Lots of wine, right? It's a good time, right? Authoritative teaching, right? The crowds are astonished, we read at the end of the sermon. It, it even sounds like God is, is with us. Jesus' ministry reaches his climax, paradoxically, as he goes to the cross in payment for our sin. He is resurrected three days later, as he ascends to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit to his disciples. And so you and I, you and I, just like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, you and I are living in this now but not yet. This age between the ages, where this present evil age and the kingdom of God are overlapping. And the future, and we'll see this in a bit, is spilling over into the present. Uh, To use a wedding uh, analogy, uh, the bride and the groom have stood before the officiant, and they've said, I do. And they're married. But they have yet to make their way to the hotel room to seal the deal, if you know what I mean. In the same way, even now, before the day of the Lord, uh, the future is spilling over into the present, as you and I powerfully, in word and in deed, bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom. The future is spilling over into the present. There has been this definitive work of rescuing done in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. And yet, as the news reminds us daily, we are far from perfect. Our world is far from whole. This is the cosmic context, if you will, that the Beatitudes come to us in. And the Beatitudes invite us to live wisely in view of that context. 
in this now but not yet. That Jesus' kingdom has come in part and will come someday soon in full. Uh, Listen to Daryl Johnson. He's a local pastor and preacher and teacher, and he's awesome on the Beatitudes. He says this, Jesus' gospel is the announcement of this great fact. The future is spilling over into the present, and heaven is invading the earth. In his Beatitudes, Jesus is simply describing what happens to human beings when his gospel grabs hold. I love that. He's describing gospel-infected people, if you will. If you like zombie movies, it's gospel-infected people. In his Beatitudes, Jesus is giving a profile of the new humanity that happens, the new humanity that emerges when the reign of God breaks into our brokenness. And so some of you have been begging for a definition for Beatitudes. Here it is. Here it is. Maybe no one was begging for a definition of Beatitudes. Maybe that's just me. Everyone's like, I was looking for that. The Beatitudes are grace-empowered wisdom invitations to flourish in Jesus' kingdom. We need to take that definition each and every week to each beatitude we look at. And if we miss even one part of that, I think we'll misunderstand and misinterpret each beatitude. These are grace-empowered wisdom invitations to flourish in Jesus' kingdom, including this first one that we're about to look at. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 5, and let's read verses 2 or 3 again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus does not start in typical fashion. If I'm trying to build a movement, if I'm trying to gain momentum, uh, this is not the beatitude I lead with. Maybe I sneak it in at like number six, right? Like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Kind of sneak it in there, right? I don't lead with blessed are the poor in spirit. As we consider the beginning of flourishing, two big questions that we've got to answer. The first is this. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are these people? Who's Jesus describing? And secondly, why do they get the kingdom? Why do they get the kingdom? First, who are the poor in spirit? What does this even mean? Uh, In our Bibles, again, in the Greek they were originally written in the New Testament, there are two words that are translated poor. And the first word translated poor means poor like uh, you don't own any land. So maybe you can relate to that kind of poor, right? The first poor means like you don't own any land, right? It's sort of like you're functioning in this world, but you could have land, and you're really not in that sort of middle class, upper middle class sort of realm. That's the first way we could, uh, word used to translate poor. The second word translated poor in our English Bibles is this word that means something uh, altogether kind of different. It's this poverty that is destitute, like panhandling, like I have nothing, and if not for the generosity of someone else, I will not eat tonight. I will not sleep under a roof tonight. I will be helpless today. That's the word that Matthew and Jesus use here in Matthew 5 verse 3. It's that kind of poverty that we're talking about. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the destitute in spirit, the I've got nothing in spirit, the completely bankrupt, nothing left to give in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is worth pausing on for a moment. Think about that imagery in view of our current cultural climate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, No way. Believe in yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm -mm. You're special, right? 
There is no one like you. Right? Snowflakes and stuff. Blessed are the poor in spirit. No. I am a small g God. And I form and shape my world. I form and shape my destiny. My truth. My reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit. No thank you. This is completely opposite to literally everything we hear every single day. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, there are going to be beatitudes uh, that, at first glance at least, uh, sound really nice, right? Like when we get to blessed are the peacemaker, we'll all smile, and it will be lovely, and we'll just be happy Christians and go on our way, right? Until we actually discover what it actually means. But, but I mean, that, that at least appears nice, Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Doesn't even have the, the appearance of, of nice. Doesn't even have the, the appearance of sort of, of sort of you know, being socially acceptable. It, it comes to us, as one commentator describes, uh, meaning a complete absence of pride. A complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness, a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. Again, this is literally the exact opposite to the message that we hear every single day. It is literally the the exact opposite. And to the question, how do you and I become poor in spirit? The answer in part is really simple. We look at God. We encounter Jesus. Poor in spirit is a grace-empowered beatitude because it is only by the Holy Spirit and his work, that you and I can see just how destitute we are in view of a holy and perfect God. Seeing our sin, seeing ourselves for who we are, in all of our stuff, in all of our ugliness, believe it or not, is a gift. And it's an invitation to live wisely because once you've caught a glimpse of God's holiness, his perfection, who he is, the only wise way to live is to begin by saying with the prophet Isaiah who cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is not a mistake. It is not a mistake that being poor in spirit is the first beatitude. Every other beatitude refers to something that you and I, by grace, grab onto, see formed in us, see fill us, if you will. But being poor in spirit, this first beatitude is this recognition of our emptiness, of our nothingness, of our lowliness. And I don't think I'm being dramatic when I say that there is no point there is no point in looking at the rest of this list if we do not first get on board with this one. If you want to be merciful, if you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you want to be a peacemaker, you must first be poor in spirit. And I realize that depending on where you're at this morning, this idea is probably hitting you in different ways. I'm under no illusion that every person here is a follower of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this, hear this beatitude as an invitation. Following Jesus for all of us always begins by acknowledging that we cannot do it on our own. 
It begins by, by seeing ourselves for who we truly are. It begins by looking at all the stuff you've accumulated in your life, your reputation, your things, even your family, and saying, in view of God, what I've built my life upon is nothing. And I'm not as rich as I thought I was. In fact, I'm poor. I'm destitute, even. Hear these words as a word of invitation. But if you are a follower of Jesus, and this was an encouragement for me this week, hear this as a word of encouragement. Maybe at the thought surface this week, like it did for me, I can't do this. And I don't know if I'm going to make it. And at my work, like they eat Christians alive. And at my school, my kids can't talk about their faith. And they're ostracized because of their faith. And, and giving generously, sacrificially, uh, I barely have enough to get by in this crazy rental market. Maybe the thought, I just don't know if I can keep on doing this. Or I don't know how I'm going to make it. Maybe that entered your mind this week. Can I encourage you? And this is going to sound so weird. If that thought entered your mind this week, you are on the right track. You're going the right way. If you are completely confident in what you're doing, I got this. It's easy. It's all well within my grasp. My world is well within my control and my power. Uh, there is a likelihood that you're not following Jesus. We've seen what it means so far to follow Jesus. And every person honestly and genuinely following Jesus will at some point, if not every day, come to a point where they're saying, I cannot do this. And this is too much for me. In those moments we learn from Jesus, as he says later in Matthew's gospel, learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I encourage you, Christian? You're on the right track. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And if that sounds like a cosmic bummer, let me encourage you with the second half of this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's where we should ask, why do the poor in spirit get the kingdom? Why do they get it? Why not the handsome? Why not the accomplished? Why not the nice people or the religious people? Or those who give the most money away? Why not those people who we give every other award to? Why do the poor in spirit get the kingdom? I think the short answer is that the poor in spirit get the kingdom because they're not holding on to any others. The poor in spirit get the kingdom because they're not holding on to any others. Later in the sermon, uh, Jesus will describe the kingdom as a narrow gate. A narrow gate. Not a wide gate. Not, not a four-lane highway, but as a narrow gate. And when we try to enter the kingdom while holding on to other kingdoms, other stories, other ways of being in this world, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen this before, trying to get through a door with a hockey stick. You've got to YouTube that. It's worth, it's worth the YouTube. It's just hard, right? And you're, you're clotheslining yourself, or like maybe you're hitting yourself someplace worse, right? Like it, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. Only those who are on their knees and see that Jesus is king and his kingdom is what we need and what I need, theirs alone is the kingdom. Because make no mistake about it, it is only 
It is only the poor in spirit to get the kingdom of heaven. And our text goes out of the way to emphasize that. Again, in the language it was originally written in, the pronouns theirs and they are at the beginning of the sentence. And and, and here's the emphasis it makes. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. They and they alone will see God. Right? They and they alone shall be satisfied. Right? They and they alone shall be called sons of God. Jesus isn't pulling punches. He's emphasizing theirs and theirs only. They and they alone. The poor in spirit see their own poverty and in return are promised the kingdom of heaven. And we should ask, we need to ask, what does that mean to live into this today? What does this mean as we go out from this place? And to our potlucks or to our schools or places of work. What does it look like to practice this flourishing? Let me first say this. We practice being poor in spirit joyfully. That sounds strange. We practice being poor in spirit joyfully. What Jesus is commending to us is not a life lived like Eeyore. Right? The eternally depressed character in Winnie the Pooh. Poor in spirit does not equal joyless existence. But... It does compel us, force us, make us put our joy in someone else, in something else, in a different kingdom. And this process, I know this because it happens every day to me, this process of having our hope move from one kingdom to another kingdom is a painful one. It's a process of death and decrease, of death and decrease. We should not miss the irony uh, that the Sermon on the Mount begins in the depths of the valley, begins with the poor in spirit. It's from here, this place in the valley, that we find joy. And here's why. There is, there is, hear me, Christ City, so much freedom in our poverty of spirit. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, he writes this about the first beatitude, and I love it. These blessed poor are no longer slaves to the tyranny of things. They have broken the yoke of the oppressor, And this I have not done by fighting, but surrendering. Though free from all sense of possessing, they yet possess all things. To borrow from Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. To borrow from the late author David Foster Wallace, we're all worshiping something. But when you stop boasting in your job, you are freed from riding the highs and lows of your career success. When you stop boasting in who you are, you are freed from riding the highs and lows of what other people think about you. When you stop boasting in your kids, you are freed from riding the highs and lows of what other people think about them. And when you stop boasting in your stuff, you are freed from contemplating suicide when it all gets taken away. There is great freedom in poverty and spirit. There's joy in poverty in spirit. Blessed, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the better thing. Theirs is the flourishing life. Joy and freedom are found in the midst of poverty of spirit because that road and that road alone leads to the kingdom of heaven, leads to a foundation, to a house that will stand for eternity. Tozer continues to write in that exact same book, Everything is safe, which, meet, which we commit to him. And nothing is really safe, 
which is not so committed. Everything is safe, which we commit to him. And nothing is really safe, which is not so committed. When we resist poverty of spirit, we deceive ourselves as to the lasting value and safety of our things, our work, our legacy. The alternative to being poor in spirit is being rich in that which is meaningless. That's the alternative. In our trying to preserve it, to keep it, to hold on to it, to grab it, we lose it. We lose it. And only in letting go of this world, committing our lives to the power and goodness of God, of Jesus, do we truly put our life and the things we love somewhere safe. Somewhere safe. We put our life and our kids' lives and our friends' lives and our desires in the return of Jesus, who will not disappoint. There is coming a day, hear me, Christ City, when our poverty will be met with richness. When our poverty will be met with richness. When our hands will no longer be empty. When all will be ours. All will be ours. In view of that day, hear the words of the first beatitude as we prepare to respond. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and theirs only, is the kingdom of heaven. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.